you came in a little late. Um, my name is Naman. It's good to be preaching God's Word for you this evening, and if, we're glad that you're here. And you know, even if you haven't been here in a while, we're good to see some old and familiar faces and some new faces as well. So, uh, if you're just joining us, last week uh, Dave Snoke kicked off our new sermon series through the book of Second Corinthians. Uh, we had been in a little bit of an Advent series and First Corinthians prior to that. So, moving right along uh, through some of Pauline's epistles. And um, Dave preached last week through the first half of chapter one, and we find ourselves now um, picking up where he left off all the way through chapter two, verse four. So, if you'll allow me to read the text, um, I'll read God's Word for tonight. And afterwards, if you could respond uh, with thanks be to God. So, let's read God's Word. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand that I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth, that we, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy and for, <clears throat> for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you let me pray for a minute? Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, I want to start off by asking us somewhat of a rhetorical question. How many of you, by raise of hands, have had every single one of your plans done as exactly the way you planned it and exactly the way that you would like. Raise your hand. Well, if, if anyone did raise their hands, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. 
Um, or maybe how many of you have had to make a plan and you yourself could no longer fulfill your end of that plan and had to back out of it? Or maybe how many of you have had somebody else do that to you, where you were counting on them, where, where a plan was supposed to happen, and they didn't uh, live up to their end of the bargain? Right? As, a, as a campus minister to many CMU students, this is one of my uh, co- most common gripes, is the group project that they're working on, and they have to hold up other people's ends of the bargain. Speaking of plans, uh, we're actually going through 2 Corinthians as a group. Some of my students are here, actually. We're actually going through 2 Corinthians as a group as a Bible study, and I was hoping that my preaching assignment, whenever we, whenever we landed on this series, would land on one of the studies that I led. And this happens to be the one passage that we did not study together as a group. Right, guys? Yeah, they can attest to that. We did not study this, so I have no uh, prior working knowledge recently of, of this passage going into it. So my plans were thwarted. I bring up that, this idea of plans, because I, I need to bring in a little bit of context here. I know we, we went through a whole sermon series on 1 Corinthians, and we're now in 2 Corinthians, but there's a lot happening in these many verses that Paul is talking about his plans, about things changing, that we may feel a little bit lost. So, 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul obviously wrote to the church in Corinth. This is actually his fourth letter, but only two of which that we have on record and, and a part of the canon. Paul was originally in Ephesus. If you can imagine, I'll have to do this backwards for your sake. If you can imagine the Aegean Sea and with modern-day Turkey on one side, he's he's in Ephesus. He's planning to go through Macedonia and then back around to Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, uh, to make his way and, and, and pay his visit to them. But before he's able to do that, Timothy comes back to him and gives him a report of how poorly the church in Corinth is doing, which is a lot of the reason why and it inspired Paul to write 1 Corinthians, right? And so Paul now, instead of going all the way around, he decides to, from Ephesus, go directly to Corinth to address some of these concerns. And then he promises them, okay, then I'll go back, backtrack my way to Macedonia and come back to you on my way down south to Jerusalem. Cool. Everybody kind of get setting geographically where we are now. Did I do an okay job doing that? Okay. So this is Paul's plan. This is how it changed, first of all. Uh, and so when Paul makes that initial visit, after hearing this report from Timothy of how poorly things are going, he was hoping that it would go well. He was hoping, the church was hoping that it would go well, but it didn't go so well. It was actually a really, really painful visit, which is kind of what he alludes to in this passage, this painful visit that Paul had with the church in Corinth, that they were unable, unwilling to repent, that there were more people trying to take control and have influence over the church, and the ter- church was actually really torn and split. Uh, and so Paul leaves Corinth. He makes his way to, to, back to Ephesus, and when he's in Macedonia, instead of being able to go back to Corinth on his way to Judea, he's not able to make that trip. So he has to renege on his original plan to, to visit Corinth again. So that caused a stir, that caused commotion, gossip, slander on Paul's integrity, on his credibility. You said you were going to come visit. You know how poorly things are being run. Why wouldn't you come and visit? So this is a lot of the issues that Paul is trying to address right now in the passage that we read. And so as modern-day people, it may seem somewhat trivial for people to get all riled up over some changes of plans. But we have to remember they didn't have smartphones back then. Right? They can't just text Corinth, send them an email, say, sorry, I was going to make it. But so I got caught up in something, so I, I, won't, I won't be able to do that. There's, there's much more at stake 
For when Paul initially says, I will come back, I'll try to restore things, I'll try to bring some sort of reconciliation to happen, and when he's not able to do that, there's much more gravity, there's much more weight and impact to his change of plans for these ancient Near Eastern Christians. So it's a, a, a fairly serious issue that, that Paul is trying to address, that it's causing enough strife in the church that he felt like he had to address. So now we have the backdrop of, of this passage as we enter into it. So as Paul is addressing these, these claims, these accusations, this, these strikes on his character, we're going to see, we're going to look at our passage tonight and look at three things. We'll look at A, Paul's integrity, B, Paul's heart, and lastly, Paul's identity, Paul's integrity, his heart, and his identity. And firstly, we'll look at his integrity. Now, you would think that when people, and, and Paul is hearing these words and reports of people talking, of people criticizing, of people bad-mouthing Paul for his change of plans, the first thought that Paul might have is the audacity the gall, like if, even if you consider Paul's track record, all of these other uh, churches that Paul was able to successfully plant, these long missionary and successful missionary journeys that he's able to make, and Corinth was at, was at the center of it. And if there was an inkling of temptation for Paul, it may have been, as he was hearing these doubts, this gossip, the slander, was to probably boast in himself. Do they not know who I am? Did they not know what I have done? Boasting was, was actually a very common theme for the city of Corinth and the church in particular, that as we look at the entirety of the New Testament and consider this one singular letter, the root word for boasting in the Greek happens half the time in 2 Corinthians. So it's a pretty serious issue that the, that the Corinthian church find themselves boasting, but what are they boasting in? Corinth was known for being a, a city that had many famous lawyers and orators that in their free time, what people would do was they would go down to the local courtyards and hear people debate for fun. And they would have these fan clubs and, and these homages paid towards famous orators to hear them be able to work out their arguments. And a lot of praise, a lot of boasting was, was placed on somebody's ability to argue, to craft their way around their words. It was almost a sport, a sport of litigation. So this is the culture that the church is surrounded by. And let me read for us verses 12 to 14 again. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you, toward the church. For we are not writing you anything other than what you read and understand and hope you will fully understand, just as you already did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. So where is Paul's boast? Where, if he was tempted to do, where could he boast in? But where did he actually boast in? Paul boasted not in the puffed-up sophistication of their day, which Paul was credible for, but Paul boasted in the simplicity and godly sincerity of preaching the gospel. Paul boasted not in the earthly wisdom of their public presence, their charisma, their ability to debate people uh, to, to the ropes, but in the grace of God. 
And as he quotes, supremely so towards you for the benefit of the church. That all of this, all of what Paul was doing, his missionary journeys, the edification of the church of his fellow brothers and sisters was for their benefit. So that ultimately, Paul's boast could be in the church. And that the church's boast could be in Paul. Not in their earthly capabilities, not in their earthly wisdom, not in their uh, ways in which they can elevate their status in the world around them. The ultimate goal for Paul is to come to a place where he can boast of the church, both in Corinth and capital C, church. And that the church can boast of him in the work they did to bring people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not by how persuasive or charismatic that Paul was, not by how competent and eloquent the Corinthians were, but to see other brothers and sisters around them rubbing shoulders, living life together, partaking in this gospel ministry together. That's what they wanted to boast in. Uh, recently, Netflix put out a, a movie, uh, somewhat of a recent movie, came out in 2017 called The Founder. And it's this movie that uh, chronicles the, the early days of the, the company McDonald's, right, and how it came to be. And the founder, quote-unquote, the the title character of it is actually a, a man by the name of Ray Kroc. No, his last name was not McDonald. And, and the story goes that Ray Kroc was this, uh, this kind of weathered salesman who wasn't very successful. He was kind of entering into his midlife crisis, and he, he had done a, a ton of other odd jobs until one day he comes across the McDonald's restaurant, the singular first restaurant in San Bernardino, California. He makes his way out there, and he's blown away by this amazing system that they have to be able to deliver high-quality food at a very fast pace, which at the time was not being done. It was, it was a culture of drive-ins and sit-down restaurants. So Ray saw this model, and he saw it as, as revolutionary. So he approaches the McDonald's brothers, the original McDonald's brothers, and says, I want a franchise for you. I want to be able to take this model, this restaurant business that you have, and make it national. And I have big dreams for this. And this, hear this speech that, a little bit of a dramatization in the movie, but hear the speech that Ray Kroc gives to the McDonald's brothers in order to persuade them to franchise. I drove through a lot of towns, and they all had two things in common. that either had a church, and they had a, court, a courthouse. On top of the courthouse, they'd have the American flag, and on top of the church, they'd have a cross. Flags and crosses, crosses and flags, everywhere I went. At the risk of sounding blasphemous, those arches, that is the golden arches of McDonald's, have a lot in common with those buildings. A building with a cross on top is a gathering, a place where decent, wholesome people come together where they share values protected by that American flag. It could be said that that beautiful building, that is McDonald's, flanked by those arches, signifies more or less the same thing. It doesn't just say delicious hamburgers inside. It signifies family, community, and where Americans come together to break bread. I'm telling you, McDonald's can be the new American church. Feeding bodies, feeding souls, and it ain't just open on Sundays, boys. Now, it sounds a little, a little silly. It sounds kind of over the top for this man to make this kind of speech. But hear what he's saying. He's trying to get at McDonald's is more than just this really single successful restaurant. The reason why Ray Kroc, and this is a true story, was able to see the value in trying to franchise McDonald's because it, it stood for something greater. 
It stood for, as he says, the breaking of bread, family, community, where that, the reason why the McDonald's brothers, as you'll see in the movie, was, were not willing to franchise is because they were not trustworthy of people being able to carry out those same values to each of their other locations. But Ray Kroc thought he could do that, and he did. But ultimately, what happened? Ray would ultimately go to cut out the McDonald's brothers from the company. He promised them to, to pay them uh, half percent in royalties throughout in perpetuity for the rest of their lives, which would equate 10 years ago to over $200 million a year. <clears throat> he, end, he eventually, through the strained relationships that he, he had with his family and traveling so much, ended up divorcing his wife. And he was willing to give her everything in the divorce, the car, the house, custody of his daughter, uh, $30,000 a year in alimony payments. He was willing to give her everything except shares in McDonald's. Right, so we see here that even though the vision that Ray Kroc had was great, we know that his boast was not in the actual image, the value of what he was trying to stand for. His boast was in himself. Look what I can do. I came from nothing. I came as this weathered salesman who was, who was about to enter my midlife crisis, and now I'm the, probably one of the most successful businessmen in the world. Look what I can do. But if he was actually able to stick by what the value of what he thought at the time McDonald's was, there is, there's a far greater impact that it could have had. And that's the same temptation that we feel today. Consider some of the words that he said, that we are a group hopefully, of, of wholesome people with, with good values, shared values, where we're looking to feed people physically, but also spiritually, to nurture their bodies, but also nurture their souls. But the moment that that boast stops and ends with us is when it falls apart. The moment that we lose sight of who the head of the church is, all of those things start to deteriorate, and we lose sight of why we're here, why we gather every week. So where is our boast? Where is your boast? Where is, is my boast? Is it in our competencies? Is it in, in what we're able to do and how many people we're able to gather, the impact that we're able to have, the things that we can to affect and change in our lives and in our, in our timelines? Where is our boast? For Paul, all of this was a continuation of the gospel work already being done when he was talking to the church in Corinth and 1 Corinthians. All of this is a continuation of all three of his missionary journeys that he was doing in his lifetime. And what we are doing now is still yet a continuation of the gospel ministry work being done based not on us, but on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where is our boast? Where is our integrity? As we move on, as, we, as Paul is addressing uh, the church and kind of uh, defending, almost defending himself for his changes and plans, we look at his heart, and I'll read for us, starting in verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you, st for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction 
in anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So we'll pause there. Again, so as, as Paul is considering all of the criticism that is going around about him, the audacity, the gall, did this church not remember the 18 months that he spent in the city to help plant the church and to get it off the ground? The, the tireless labor that he spent as a t- tent maker to support himself and to support the, the, the ministry of the church. The hours that he probably spent praying with and for leaders, teaching them, training them, to raise them up as elders of the church. In many ways, Paul was the spiritual father of Corinth, and yet here his children were criticizing him, doubting him, mocking him. So if there was another temptation for Paul to rest on his laurels to boast, I feel like the very next temptation for Paul would have been to be defensive and to lash out and to discipline the church with full judgment and authority. But as the text tells us, that's not what Paul does. Paul's apparent change in plans not to visit Corinth again was not so that he could skirt his responsibility or, or that he was feeling fickle or he was kind of scared of how they might react, but Paul's decision not to visit Corinth again, as the text says, was for their grace to spare them. Paul did not want to enact the full judgment and discipline that the church actually deserved. It would have been yet another painful visit for Paul to go in person and to discipline the church in the ways that they needed. And this isn't the first time that he relents this way. When he did make that first visit, and it was a painful visit, Paul left, knowing that it was better for him to suffer the humiliation and the brokenness rather than to enact full judgment and discipline on the church. And he's doing it again for their sake, to spare them, to be merciful towards them. Paul wanted to spare them from yet another painful visit, one that would have warranted more severe rebuke, more severe censures. I wanted to spare you, and he had every right to lord it over them, his, his own faith to lord it over them and to make them feel shame and guilt for the things that they were doing. But that's not what he did. 